The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. People like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, they basically lashed out at the entire capitalist world, and that lashing out created a counter-revolutionary arms struggle, which in turn contributed to their durability. So it's that reckless behavior creating enemies that ultimately led to their creating very strong authoritarian institutions. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. About 20 years ago, Luke and Wayne and Stephen Levitsky wrote an influential paper that changed how scholars thought about democracy and authoritarianism. They introduced the idea of competitive authoritarianism. A few years later, they published a book based on the concept called Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War. It's among the most influential books in political science in the past 20 years. Since then, Luke and Wei and Stephen Levitsky have become well-known names among political scientists. Lucan is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Petrojasic Program for the Study of Ukraine. Stephen is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies, a professor of government, and the director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. They are also both co-chairs of the editorial board at the Journal of Democracy. They now have a new book called Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. It's an impressive work with some very surprising findings and a very wide range of examples that are explored in depth. I consider this to be just one of the best books of 2022 so far, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. Now, if you like this podcast, I do hope that you'll consider becoming a supporter. You can join at Patreon to access bonus material or ad-free versions of the episodes for a very small monthly contribution. I've also set up a donation page at democracyparadox.com where you can make a one-time donation or a monthly recurring donation without getting Patreon involved. For those who don't know, this is an independent podcast, so I rely on supporters to provide new episodes every week, so thank you if you're already supporting the show. Now, like always, you can send comments or questions to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. Here is my conversation with Luke and Way and Stephen Levitsky. Luke and Way and Stephen Levitsky, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So 
I was really impressed with this new book, Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. I feel that this is one of the best books of 2022 so far. I think that it's got some of the characteristics that really just set this book apart in terms of the type of literature that I read on democracy, authoritarianism, in terms of regimes, all that different types of literature in terms of political science. I felt like this was an extremely novel work. I thought it was a very impressive one. And one of the lines that stood out to me was in the book you write, revolutionary regimes are among the world's most durable autocracies. They are also the most reckless. This is no coincidence. To me, that line is completely counterintuitive. Understanding it, though, is key to understanding the big picture ideas in this book. Why don't we start out with an example of how the recklessness of a revolutionary regime actually contributes to durable authoritarianism? I think essentially the recklessness contributes by generating huge enemies to the regime. So that to me, one of the most fascinating discoveries was that when these durable autocracies came to power, we think of the Soviet Union lasting 74 years, we think of China lasting 70 plus years, we tend to think of them as very stable, strong regimes. When they came to power, you know, in Petrograd in 1917, for example, the Bolsheviks barely controlled a few couches in a form of girls' school. And so the kind of rational behavior for most autocrats or dictators when they come to power in such a circumstance would be to sort of make alliances and, you know, make friends to sort of solidify a broad ruling coalition. That's sort of the standard authoritarian approach. But instead, people like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, they basically lashed out at the entire capitalist world. And that lashing out created a counter-revolutionary armed struggle, which in turn contributed to their durability. So it's that reckless behavior creating enemies that ultimately led to their creating very strong authoritarian institutions, which was our major discovery. The key is, I mean, it's enemies, but it's also war, sometimes civil war, sometimes external war, sometimes both. But it's the reckless behavior that triggers the wars that, although sometimes kill regimes like in Cambodia, in most cases actually serve to strengthen the regimes. There doesn't seem to be a leader who's any more reckless in my mind than maybe Mao Zedong. And yet China is among one of the most durable authoritarian regimes that has lasted to this day and doesn't seem to have an end in sight. What were some of the reckless activities, some of the reckless decisions that Mao took that actually contributed to the durability of China's authoritarian regime today? So this really is in the 1920s. And one of the interesting contrasts that I found was between two revolutionary leaders of the 1920s. One was Chiang Kai-shek and the other was Mao Zedong. Now, Chiang Kai-shek was anti-imperialist, and he was the first to try to create in the 20th century a unified Chinese state. And we have to remember about China that now it's one of the most durable, strongest regimes in the world. In the 1920s and 1930s, China was basically like Afghanistan. It was this sort of warlord-driven, incredibly weak state that had been divided up by foreign imperialist powers. So Chiang Kai-shek seeks to sort of create a unified China out of this in the 1920s, and he does it the most rational way, which is by making alliance with a lot of these warlords, right, which allows him to build the state relatively quickly in the 1920s. Now, Mao, who's also anti-imperialist, 
decides that he's not just going to create a unified Chinese state against the wishes of the imperialist powers, but he's also going to challenge the established gentry class who are allied to Chiang Kai-shek. So this basically almost results in the annihilation of the Chinese Communist Party. If you were to rerun this, somehow the 1920s and 1930s, we might have never heard of Mao. The Chinese Communist Party very likely would have been totally wiped out in 1935. They managed by hook or crook to survive but in the meantime, this sort of you know, life and death struggle against both the nationalist Chiang Kai-shek as well as the Japanese creates this enormously cohesive elite that survives into power until the 1990s. So it was that sort of reckless behavior of attacking both the foreign powers as well as the sort of landowning class that ultimately created this revolutionary war that in turn led to sort of intense levels of unity within the Chinese Communist Party that hadn't existed before. Now, Stephen, when we're talking about revolutions today, we're talking about specific types of revolutions. Like, I've had on Mark Basinger a few months ago, and he was talking about urban civic revolutions that are much more common, much more frequent today. And in this book, you're not really talking about those at all. You're talking about much more drastic, dramatic social revolutions. Can you describe what those are? Yeah, we are talking very specifically about social revolutions. We consider, I mean, with all due respect to Mark Weisinger, who does extraordinary work, for us, those are popular-based regime changes. Social revolutions involve not only regime change, not only the fall of the previous regime, but mass uprisings led by figures outside of the state, meaning not coups, that bring about both a collapse and reconstruction of the state itself, and at least an effort to dramatically reconfigure the social order. So a social revolution involves the collapse of the state and an effort to radically transform society, whether it's racial hierarchies or property ownership or the dominant religion or culture. So these are efforts to thoroughly reconfigure the state and society. By our count, obviously there are different ways of measuring this, there are 20 of these in the 20th century. So that, that's a pretty rare event. Uh, and our argument is that these have an impact on political regimes that you don't see with political revolutions or popular uprisings that bring about regime change. Now, for you, a social revolution always brings about an authoritarian regime. Do I understand that right? Yes, it's not by definition, but empirically, that's the case. And it's not surprising, right? When the old state collapses and a group seizes power through violence and rebuilds the state, they're going to build their own army. You're going to have what is almost invariably a partisan army and a partisan state. And it's pretty rare that rebels who overthrow the old regime destroy the old state and build their own state, it's pretty rare that those folks then build a democracy. They're going to have an awful lot of power, resources, and in particular guns at their disposal. So almost invariably, at least empirically, the result is an authoritarian regime. Now, I know that you only talk about the 20th century, but the French Revolution started out as a republic, turned into a military dictatorship, is the French Revolution the exception that proves the rule? Well, first of all, I mean, the French Revolution certainly did not result in democracy in the near term. It resulted in military dictatorship. You know, it does not fit our case um, in the sense that it did not create a durable regime. 
um, and it had to do with various factors. It was very much the kind of reckless behavior creating counter-revolutionary struggle. But this is an example more like Cambodia in our book or Afghanistan, in which was kind of wiped out as a result of this reckless behavior. So Robespierre, you know, engages in these massive purges, and they sort of basically results in a sort of counterattack by moderates, and he gets wiped out. Now, over time, in the in the longer run, it's certainly possible that revolutions can have a democratizing impact, particularly if they take place, and they usually do, against oligarchies or you know highly unjust and undemocratic systems. Revolutions topple those systems. So the Mexican Revolution toppled a highly inegalitarian land structure and a dictatorship, did not produce a democracy initially, did not produce a democracy for 80 years, but eventually, by the late 20th century, created the conditions for democracy. To a lesser extent, in a less stable way, Bolivia and Nicaragua didn't initially give rise to democracies, but a few decades down the road gave rise to pretty unstable democracies, but democracies nevertheless. And in France as well, you can make, as Barrington Moore has, the argument that eventually the French Revolution did create conditions for democracy. But initially, as Lucan said, it gave rise to a dictation. So what about Cuba? It seems like Fidel Castro started with a political revolution that seemed to turn into a social revolution. Is that a template that sometimes happens? We view it as a social revolution from early on. I mean, the state collapses. Uh, It is true that Castro's sort of socioeconomic project was vague, but by May 1959, they've already launched a land reform that puts them in conflict with the economic elite and the United States. So for us, this is a social revolution from year one. So, Luke, and part of the argument here, though, is that the revolutionaries have to radicalize. They've got to be able to take a hardline stance. We've talked about some of those examples. I mean, Russia is a perfect example. China is a perfect example. Cuba is a perfect example. What happens when the revolutionaries decide to moderate, decide not to take such a hardline stance, and decide to make accommodations with other groups within society? A perfect example of this is the case that everybody wants to know about, which is Guinea-Bissau. That was a joke. (laughs) Okay. So Guinea-Bissau was a small Portuguese colony that became independent in 1974. And unlike other cases, they had sort of divided. They had a radical faction and a moderate faction. And basically, when they came to power, the radical faction began to sort of make efforts to nationalize land, create a command economy, and the like. So that's why we call it a social revolution. But quickly, the tables turned and the moderates took power and they made alliances with the Portuguese, the former colonizers. They didn't attack the major interests. So as a result, uh, you have none of the cohesion that kept other revolutionary regimes in power in sort of equivalent cases in Angola and Mozambique, which were also under Portuguese colonial rule. So the interesting thing is that initially in the 1970s, Guinea-Bissau was considered the more stable one, didn't face any external threats didn't have any kind of insurgency as you had in Angola and Mozambique. But the result was the regime, in so many words, became soft. It quickly, the party divided. There was a a coup in 1980, and eventually the state was incredibly weak and the regime fell in 1999. So that's a sense, sort of, I guess you could say, a cautionary tale of the dangers of taking a more moderate accommodationist stance. Yeah, the paradox is that that this accommodated behavior, which is entirely rational, 
right? You know, don't go to war with powerful foreign enemies. Don't trigger an internal civil war like the Russians or the Cubans did. You can achieve short-term peace and stability through accommodation, but you're much less likely to develop the cohesion, as Lupin said, much less likely to build a powerful coercive apparatus the way the Cubans and the Russians had to to survive, the way the Iranians had to to survive. You don't need to. You don't do it. So you don't build a powerful and cohesive course of apparatus. And eventually, that makes you a, a more normal authoritarian regime prone to the kinds of divisions and oppositions that can bring regimes down. Now, Lukin being Lukin could have talked about Algeria, Nicaragua, went right for Guinea-Bissau. But there are other cases as well. Algeria is a classic case. The Algerian revolutionaries in the 1960s, this is a regime that ended up surviving for a very long time but was much less stable or much less durable than regimes in, say, Cuba or, or Vietnam. The Algerians basically made peace with the French early on, other than nationalizing the properties left by white settlers in 1962. They didn't get engaged in a lot of redistribution. And so the Algerian revolutionaries didn't really face much war after 1962-63. Using Lucas' terms, it was a softer regime. Ended up being pretty stable, but a softer regime than those we see in, say, Vietnam. Uh, and a similar story occurs in Bolivia and Nicaragua, which are two very short-lived regimes. The impression that I get is that to build a durable authoritarian regime, you need to eliminate any other alternative source of power and effectively make sure that pluralism doesn't exist within the regime, because pluralism seems to be a source, like, it's not a sufficient condition for democracy, but it seems to be a necessary condition to be able to eventually democratize. And so I'm kind of getting reminded back to the conversation I had with you, Lucan, just a few weeks ago, where you really emphasized that part of the reason why Ukraine was in this unstable form of democracy was because you had different divisions within the country. Is that really the source of a durable authoritarian regime, the fact that they eliminate those different divisions within the country due to a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, those divisions just don't exist. I think, yes, absolutely. So I think one of the quote unquote benefits of these wars is they provide an opportunity for the ruling party to sort of wipe out alternative centers of power. So in Russia, for example, they wipe out the church, they wipe out the landowning class, they wipe out the old monarchy. And so in a sense, the regime, if they survive, which they do in Russia and China, is basically the only one left standing. So this actually gives these regimes enormous room for error, right? I mean, so one of the striking things about, like, take Russia and China, for example, is that they really wreak total havoc and chaos, famine and whatnot on their societies. But because there was no organized force to challenge them, they were able to survive. So it's wiping out these alternative centers of power that really provides a key source of stability in almost all of these cases. And when you don't do it, eventually, as you said, Justin, pluralism creates, it doesn't automatically democratize, it doesn't automatically bring down the regime. But when the regime gets in trouble, it creates a powerful resource for opponents. So when Algeria's economy starts to go bad in the 1970s, there are Islamic organizations that the regime did not wipe out that were a key basis for opposition mobilization. In Nicaragua, when the Sandinistas are compelled to hold elections, unlike Cuba, unlike Vietnam, there is a church and a private sector still there able to provide an infrastructure for what had seemed like a very weak opposition. 
You just mentioned the private sector, and that's something that's always on my mind when I think about pluralism, is the fact that by having a market economy, you have just a natural source of alternative forms of power, just by having wealthy people within the country. Can durable authoritarianism coexist with a market economy, Stephen? For sure it can. I mean, all things equal, I think you're right that uh, a capitalist economy and private ownership disperses resources. It's a source of pluralism that's a potential challenge to any authoritarian regime. But we have seen that in the medium to, I would say, long run, we've seen that regimes that are able to either forge an alliance with or co-opt the private sector can coexist with capitalism and the private sector for a long time. See it in Singapore, Malaysia, Mexico. We see it now in Vietnam and China. Can it last forever? We don't know. Can it last bordering on a century? Yes. So I just want to add, you know, this is what we see right now in China, right? I mean, you know, that there is a capitalist class, private property, who has an enormous stake in the existing regime. And so they are not in any way a force for democracy. They have no interest in overthrowing the Communist Party. Yeah, but in the case of China and Vietnam, I feel like those capitalist classes evolved after durable authoritarianism was already in place. And so maybe it's a little bit different when the authoritarian regime can create those new institutions and create those new sources of power because it kind of puts their fingerprints on it. Do you feel like Part of the reason why China is able to have the type of market economy that it does, to the extent that it does, coexist with durable authoritarianism is due in part to the fact that Mao effectively eliminated all the alternative sources of power before China allowed those to start to be reconstructed again. Yeah, I think that probably has something to do with it. But you have other cases, you know, the, our longest surviving authoritarian regime is Mexico which had a private sector. I mean, I, I think, you know, all things equal, if I were sort of in a, an evil lab wanting to create the most durable authoritarian regime, I would definitely eliminate the private sector. But, you know, Iran's another case in which they weren't interested in, in overthrowing capitalism, but they've also managed to survive for, you know, 40 plus years without eliminating the private sector. That's another example. A more recent, you know, somewhat less developed case is Rwanda. Nothing anti-capitalist about that revolution. Uh, it's proved pretty durable for a quarter century. So, Stephen, we just got done talking about pluralism and talking about different forms of pluralism within durable authoritarianism. And I feel like that's something that I see in Lucan's work, but something that I saw that was just very distinctive to me as a part of your work was the idea of strong institutions, the way in which durable authoritarian regimes seem to rebuild institutions. And something that I really wanted to ask you about was, do revolutionary regimes build strong institutions? I think very often they do. And the, the first scholar who really famously pointed that out was Sam Huntington many, many years ago. He uh, argued in his book, Political Order and Changing Societies, that revolutions very often give rise to strong institutions. So we cannot take credit for any discoveries here, but not in all cases, but in most cases, yes. Most revolutions, not all, but most revolutions occur in places with pretty weak states and pretty weak pre-existing institutions. And in most cases, whether it is Russia or China or Vietnam or Cuba, even Nicaragua, the regimes that emerge afterwards tend to have stronger institutions. Now, it varies by institution. 
The institutions are strongest, I think, often in areas of security and policing, not always so strong, often relatively weak and unstable in terms of economic institutions uh, and the rule of law. But by and large, yes, violence, a cohesive elite, stability, external threat, these are conditions that tend to give rise to stronger institutions. Do you feel that that's distinctive for revolutionary regimes when we compare them to more personalistic dictatorships? Yes. I mean, I think one of the striking things about revolutionary regimes, most, not all, certainly not in Iran, is the other institution they create is a strong party. And what's interesting is that the sources of durability really change over time. So as we see in the Soviet Union in the first 30 years, the Bolshevik party wasn't really that strong. And the cohesion really came out of the fear of counter-revolution, the fear of annihilation, because literally, you know, they're the first socialist country in the world. They are surrounded by capitalists. They're sort of what they call capitalist encirclement. Now, by the 1950s, after World War II, no one's concerned in the Soviet Union about annihilation. So that sort of siege mentality is mostly gone. But what they have is a very strong and well-institutionalized political party. So that, in a sense, becomes the source of durability in the 1960s and 1970s. And so they begin to look much more like a sort of, you know, quote unquote, normal authoritarian regime that's less driven by sort of ideology and by sort of fear of annihilation and more by sort of these institutions of redistribution that scholars like Barbara Geddes and others have talked about. But what you're saying is, is that during those early years, they're tearing down all the institutions, not all of them, but a lot of them. They're tearing down a lot of the alternative sources of power and acting recklessly. But once they kind of reach a certain point, like once we get past that first generation, they've reestablished new institutions that are the foundation of what offers them durability into the future. So that when those next few generations don't act in quite the same way, don't act recklessly any longer. It seems like it's the institutions that they've constructed within that first and even second generation that provide the durability. Am I understanding that right? I think that, I mean, it varies a bit by case, but yes, I mean, that certainly there is a process of institutionalization in Mexico, in Cuba to an extent, in China, in Russia, where the party and the new state bureaucracies that are created in the generation after the revolution have a sort of self-sustaining effect or self-reinforcing effect. And I don't think it's the bureaucracies or the institutions themselves that ensure the durability of the regime, but they, they're they more likely to help if they're accompanied by, say, economic growth, uh, as we saw in Mexico, as we see in China and Vietnam. But you know, revolutionary regimes have periods of high levels of personalism. Certainly we saw in Cuba and in the Stalinist and Maoist periods. But most revolutionary regimes in part because they're fairly ideological, because they often face years of existential threat, they become collective projects. They're not just regimes like, say, the Somoza regime or the uh, Batista regime in Cuba, which are really at the whim of, of an individual leader, or even the regime in Iran before the revolution. Personalistic dictatorships almost invariably weaken or fail to strengthen institutions. It's very, very rare that you see a truly personalistic regime build strong, durable institutions, but most revolutionary regimes do. Now, again, it's not always the institutions that provide the durability. And 
in cases like Iran and Cuba, there are stronger institutions built, but you also have a powerful external threat that continues to provide a source of cohesion for the elite for decades after the revolution. So the sources of durability vary. But you're right. In most cases, revolutions give rise to institutionalized parties, more institutionalized bureaucracies that themselves are a source of longer term stability. Yeah, I mean, you're right that a lot of these revolutionary regimes begin as personalistic dictatorships in a lot of ways. When we look at Mao Zedong, we look at Vladimir Lenin. I mean, these are personalistic leaders. And it seems like it's the personalism that is part of the reason why they're tearing down the institutions. But I really think it's fascinating the way that you emphasize the revolutionary nature that changes the dynamics of the regime itself, that changes the dynamics of the personalistic type regime that eventually lead to some kind of institution building that allow it to go beyond just that personalistic leader into oftentimes a second, third generation if they can establish what you guys describe as durable authoritarianism. So first of all, I want to correct a little bit. Lenin was not personalist in any kind of normal way. In fact, he was constrained to a rather significant extent by the party. But you're absolutely right that both Stalin and Mao were highly personalistic. Policymaking in China oftentimes happened around Mao's pool, uh, where he liked to swim. And in Stalin, all major policy decisions were made around the banquet in Stalin's summer house, you know, where everybody else drank vodka except for Stalin. Nonetheless, you know, there were incredibly personalist elements to these regimes, but it was more than that. There was also the party and the security apparatus. It wasn't simply personalism, which you find in the sort of more kind of sultanistic regimes in the Dominican Republic in the 50s and 60s. So I think it is a little bit confusing because, you know, it's hard not to think of Stalinism and Maoism as being highly personalistic, but it wasn't simply that. And I think there was also this major institution building at the same time. What causes revolutionary regimes, even after they become what you describe as durable authoritarianism, what causes them to eventually fall, to eventually fail? Well, there are you know, a variety of causes. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, a lot of them have survived. In the Soviet Union, actually, it was, I think of the class of the Soviet Union was in many ways uh, collapsed by suicide, that you had a very undeniably strong regime with no opposition. I mean, the opposition in the 1980s in the Soviet Union was limited to a few dissidents in their kitchens, periodically showing anti-Soviet placards in Red Square for two minutes before they were quickly arrested. And the party was incredibly unified. And what happened essentially is that the general secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, decided for reasons that are you know a mystery to destroy the party and create pluralism. And it's only... When he begins undermining the party and reducing censorship, that's when you see the wave of protests that eventually, as Mark Weisinger shows in his work, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But before Gorbachev's liberalizing reforms, the regime would have lasted for a very long time. Steve can speak to Mexico, which is another case. In, in Yugoslavia, it had to do with the particular sort of nationalities policy, but I'm not sure there's a sort of single path to collapse for these revolutionary regimes. No, I mean, a couple of points. I mean, first of all, it's striking how small a sample we have. The reason why Lukin can't come up with a generalized theory is there are really few cases, right? Leaving aside the early burnout cases like Cambodia and the regimes like Bolivia and Nicaragua, revolutionary regimes in the 20th century that consolidated, most of them are still around. 
Vietnam, Cuba, Algeria, Eritrea, Iran, Rwanda, Angola, Mozambique, most of them are still around. So it's hard to generalize. So I'm, I'm generalizing bordering on speculation here. But what occurs, maybe a slightly different read of the Soviet Union than Lucan, but certainly this is the case in Mexico, when the revolutionary generation passes and there is not a real existential threat, the regime gradually evolves into something that's more similar to a standard authoritarian regime. They become less cohesive, less able to respond to crises, and more reliant on traditional sources of durability, whether it's co-optation or economic growth and performance. You can't rely on the old cohesion. So while they grow, they likely to survive. But in the case of Mexico, for example, the country slid into a pretty serious economic crisis in the 1980s, again in the 1990s, and that brought the regime down. It was sort of a typical end to a regime that began almost a century earlier in a very atypical way. So eventually these regimes grow old, and as they grow old, they begin to get more similar to other authoritarian regimes. And then they die for more similar reasons, and of course, regimes die for a multiplicity of reasons. So China's a regime that has been around for a long time now, and they're about to have their 20th National Congress. Xi Jinping is looking to be able to attain his third term as president and also continue on as chairman of the CCP. Xi Jinping is interesting because he's had this almost Maoist revival within China. Some people call it like a neo-Stalinist wave. Is Xi Jinping trying to fight back against losing some of that ideological fervor? Is he trying to bring that back to be able to revitalize the Chinese regime in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly been an attempt by Xi, you know, to eliminate corruption. And I mean, I think to some extent he's been successful. And the Chinese elite is very aware of the Soviet experience. And I think now sort of Brezhnevism is kind of on their mind. By Brezhnevism, we mean sort of this very stable but incredibly corrupt regime that's sort of vulnerable to sort of defection and the like. And so some scholars, you know, a few years ago, like Andrew Walder, some China specialists, sort of compared contemporary China to Chiang Kai-shek under the nationalists, which was also sort of insanely corrupt, but sort of riven by factions. I think that's sort of uh, misleading because I think that the Chinese communist regime today has a much stronger coercive apparatus, has much greater control over the army and the security services, certainly than Chiang Kai-shek did. And most strikingly, you know, reaches far deeper into Chinese society than Chiang Kai-shek ever did in the 1930s. You know, there was talk about five or 10 years ago of the sort of China's looming regime crisis. I don't see any evidence of that right now. I think there's zero opposition. The business sector is fully under the regime's control, such that they can even survive these sort of kind of policy disasters, such as the zero COVID policy that has led to sort of near starvation in certain cities. So it's a very stable regime by any measure. That's actually a theme in the book, the idea that revolutionary regimes regularly survive policy disasters. And I think that there's no better example of that than maybe Iran. You've described how Iran makes regular mistakes within how they kind of set up their policy and have a lot of popular dissatisfaction of the regime by the general populace. But at the same time, it seems impervious to any kind of policy mistakes. Can you kind of explain why revolutionary regimes seem to be impervious to poor governance? 
Well, there are a few reasons, and Iran's a particularly interesting case because a lot of our cases are kind of very much Bolshevik in the sense that they have a very strong party that's top-down and the like. It's hard to think of a less Bolshevik regime than Iran. I mean, within the regime itself, there's enormous pluralism and sort of you have semi-competitive elections. I mean, the candidates are filtered, certainly not anybody's allowed to run for president. But a couple of things we found really maintain stability in Iran. The first is that you have an incredibly strong and loyal coercive apparatus in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, that basically strengthened enormously during the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, that's deeply loyal to the supreme leader, Khamenei. The second factor, which I think is sort of less obvious, and there's something that was really came out of the research, was at one level, it seems like there is sort of pluralism and you have a quote-unquote opposition in Massoud in 2009. What we found was that even the quote-unquote opposition, the forces that led the sort of failed Green Revolution of 2009, were in fact loyal to the clerical regime, that they weren't really willing to go into full-scale opposition, that they felt sort of an ideological commitment to clerical rule, which really hampered their ability to challenge the regime. Because a lot of, I mean, as you know, you can speak to a lot of Iranians from Tehran, these sort of restrictions on dress and separation of male and female is incredibly unpopular. But there's basically no one to sort of really tap into that who's willing to take advantage of those issues. Revolutionary regimes show us something that we already knew, which is the public support and public legitimacy are nice. They're helpful, all things equal, but they're not necessary for a regime, at least under certain circumstances, to survive for quite a while. And particularly if you wipe out independent power centers, as we discussed earlier, if you have a powerful, cohesive and effective course of apparatus, and if you maintain a cohesive elite, you can ride out some pretty unpopular policies and poor governance. Now, this is most likely in a context of external threat, like Cuba and Iran have faced, like China faced for many years, because that helps to maintain elite cohesion. But if you maintain a cohesive elite, a powerful course of apparatus, and you have wiped out alternative centers of organizing and resources, you can survive a long way despite unpopular policies. The Cubans showed that, the Iranians showed that, the Vietnamese, who had a very, very crisis-ridden unification in the late 1970s, similar case. So as I went through your data set, the regimes that you classify as revolutionary, I noticed that they're all in the 20th century, that you kind of stop in the 1990s classifying them. And like I said, when I talk to other people about revolutions, they emphasize the changing nature of revolutions, that now we have these more urban civic revolutions. Should we continue to expect to see new revolutionary regimes that are more of the social revolutionary type in the 21st century? Yes. The conditions that give rise to social revolutions are weak states and radical ideologies. And although you know Marxism may well be dead, we may not see any more 20th century communist revolutions. But state weakness is likely to create permissive conditions for revolution. And as long as you get organized groups driven by radical ideologies of some type or another, the potential for social revolution persists. And, you know, we saw an effort at that, ultimately unsuccessful with the Islamic State. 
And we just saw what looks like a new revolution or a second revolution in Afghanistan, which suggests to me that although revolutions will continue to be rare because the conditions that have to come together to produce a social revolution are unusual conditions. So again, 20 revolutions in the 20th century. These are not going to happen every day. But the conditions that gave rise to 20th century revolutions seem to me to still exist in the 21st. You know, I think what people like Mark Beisinger have sort of rightly pointed out is that sort of that, again, communism or Marxism no longer has the salience that it once did. But, you know, there are other types of radical ideologies. I mean, we see this particularly in the Middle East. I mean, these are, you know, quite relevant. And new ideologies, you know, will emerge almost certainly. And again, I mean, every theorist of social revolution, the first, the most important factor is state collapse. And there's still plenty of that around. Not to mention sort of new forces of the internet, which sort of allow for the more rapid spread of radical ideologies. You know, history never repeats itself verbatim, but I really have a hard time seeing the end of social revolutions as such. Well, Stephen and Luke, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't say enough praise for the book, Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. I definitely recommend everybody to pre-order it and to have that ready to go on the bookshelf. It's a fascinating read. It's so encompassing. It just touches on so many different parts of history and brings it together. And I just think that it's one of the best books that I've read in quite some time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Justin. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.